sometimes people are so numb from their own experiences they don't feel their own body but they see the impact of their bodily reactions in other people and what we really want is to enable people to be better witnesses of their own body and to become more self-compassionate to respect those bodily feelings and do self-care where if they're not in good physiological states or optimal ones that they appreciate the limitations of what that will have on their lives. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Stephen Porges. I am honored to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. I am super excited to sit down and break out some polyvagal theory. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to an interesting dialogue. So sometimes when people talk about stress, they refer to two states and they're really referring to kind of the two states of the autonomic nervous system, the fight or flight, the rest and digest but you have found that the nervous system is much more complex and there is another state that's a response. So I would say that the nervous system is much more rational in its decision-making properties and that we have to be very careful about imposing a simplistic worldview on our nervous system and trying to make everything fit that simplistic view. First of all, I don't like the term stress because it confuses us and gets us really uh, into circular discussions because certain physiological shifts that have been used for markers of stress are actually indicators of movement. So we talk about like increased levels of cortisol, which is almost synonymous for stress in the research and in, in popular culture. Cortisol facilitates mobilization by converting a norepinephrine into epinephrine and reducing uh, breaking down lactate. So cortisol is our friend and yet it's portrayed in the literature and in many discussions as this indicator of stress. So mobilization is not necessarily stress. We move when we play, we move when we engage. But if we move when we're constrained or we're fighting, we have different physiological responses. So there's been a misunderstanding of the autonomic nervous system as being, in a sense, a uh, being used as a definition of stress. And I'm really saying we need to think about our physiology as it supports adaptive functions. And sometimes those adaptive functions are to be quiescent. Sometimes they're, be, they're adaptive to be moving, to be mobile. And when you talk about mobilization, you're talking about like the literal physical movement of the body. Right. And actually what I would say, mobilization is any recruitment of our muscles. You know, any recruitment recruit. of our muscles. Yeah. Right. So we can be mobilized without moving in the sense that we have muscle tension to our muscles, tension to our muscles, and that would be preparatory for movement. But that would fit into the same physiological shift that prepares us to move. Yeah. So how about when we don't feel safe and there is the opposite of mobilization? There's well, well, the freezing. Well, let's start with this whole notion of feeling safe. Mm -hmm. And what polyvagal theory does is tries to emphasize bodily states that change 
and the feelings that we get from those bodily states. So polyvagal theory emphasizes the feelings and not the events or the objects. Uh, so when we talk about stress or not feeling safe, people often identify an external event or object or situation. But in reality, it's all about feeling safe which is really means that we're using psychological terms or subjective feelings to put labels on our bodily state. And so there's a certain physiology that supports health growth and restoration. And that physiology also supports feelings of safety and compassion and trust and the ability to develop relationships. But when our nervous system comes under threat, we then get prepared to mobilize, to fight or flee. However, if we can't flee, if we can't fight, so like there's a large size differential between a perceived predator or we're in a, a vehicle that's going to be hit or in, we, and we can't get out, our body may go into another state. It may actually just totally collapse, shut down, dissociate, and pass, and we may pass out. So people often describe situations of being attacked by another, but their body just collapsed. They couldn't fight, they couldn't run. But we end up getting confused with that as well. We start thinking in terms of being freezing and we use kind of like Munch's painting the screen where the body's fully tense, but no words can come out. And people often describe situations like that. But if you think of freezing, there's muscle tone there's neural regulation of the muscles. The muscles are tight. You just can't regulate them. So it's kind of like a hybrid state that has this immobilization, but there's also muscle tone. And when you have muscle tone, you're recruiting the sympathetic nervous system. And that is what we often talk about in terms of arousal and stressors. But when we totally shut down and pass out, we're rec recruiting a very ancient vagal circuit that we share with the most ancient vertebrates. So it's like, it's the last stage of survival. It's that when a reptile is challenged, they often just immobilize and appear to be dead. This death feigning enables them to survive. And they can, if you follow the history or the evolutionary history of many reptiles, they would just go underwater and stop breathing for a couple hours. Now, mammals don't have that luxury. We have big brains and we can't hold our breath that long. And survive, I should say. We can. So yeah. our bodies uh, may go to this moment of shutting down, but the next time we're challenged, and this may actually be in terms of patients that you may even see who have many uh, medically unexplained symptoms following traumatic events, and they're going to a chiropractor because they want a manipulation which they hope will remove these symptoms, what you find out is that the nervous system is so intelligent that it will not go back to that total collapse, shutting down state because it's potentially lethal, but will now develop a hybrid state where the person will immobilize and dissociate. So their body will maintain a neural tone to it so their heart doesn't go into such a massive slowing up and they don't go apneic and stop breathing, but they will literally disappear. They go into a dissociative state and their body is more like they, they can't move it. It doesn't work. And these are actually uh, descriptions that many people who have survived being raped and other things will, will tell you that they really weren't there. 
you know, they were someplace else. And those who are in relationships of chronic abuse, they often just check out. And this is part of the body's very intelligent, adaptive way of not fighting and getting severely injured. The person just checks out. Yeah. I had heard you talk about how this is the most ancient response. And I had to Google a lizard because mm-hmm. I didn't realize that they just kind of lay on their back and mm. <laughs> immobilize. For people who have had trauma and have this disassociation, a lot of times they'll be told, well, why didn't you fight back, right? Because yeah. you gave the example of someone who's been raped and mm-hmm. well, why didn't you fight back? You were feeling attacked. But really this immobilization and this disassociation is it like a almost a primal response? I think of it as a reflex. It's so a reflex. think of it as primal. And there's actually an interview with me that was published in The Guardian. And your listeners might like to Google that and where I describe it, this whole situation. And for those of us who have, let's say, one foot in the trauma world, these situations are, we hear them all the time. But when you, for me, when I was like watching the Kavanaugh hearings, which was a year ago, I was totally shocked that it was, that people felt it was incredulous that Christina didn't fight the person off. Everything about her life story literally fit a script of what happens to people who, who really experience this life threat. They almost go amnesic in part, and they don't have the intentionality or the ability to, for their intentions to move their body. And then it becomes transformative in their life, meaning it makes it difficult for them to create relationships afterwards. And this whole act of going into this immobilization or inability to recruit fight flight is a powerful reaction that many people have experienced. But once they've experienced it, they don't know how to make sense of it. And in part, the scientists haven't been helpful and especially the the stress scientists, because they argued literally with traumatized individuals that they really were very stressed out. They were having high levels of cortisol. They were high levels of sympathetic activation. And when the clients would say, that's really not how I felt. I felt I couldn't move. I felt I was disappearing. They would try to reframe it. And so the survivors of trauma often felt that they were not accurately or appropriately witnessed by therapists and the scientific community. And polyvagal theory, uh, in a sense, brought back an understanding of our evolutionary heritage, that we have a very ancient circuit that we use reflexively when there are no other options. But it's no guarantee that we will reflexively go into that state. Some people will and some people won't. But if we go into it, it's not because we say, I want to go in there. It's actually quite remarkable because if you go there, because in many ways your body's protected, you're not feeling pain, but it's also a potentially lethal state to be in because you're not getting sufficient oxygen to your brain. So for people who have experienced that but didn't even realize it, right? So that immobility, that disassociation, I know I've experienced that where I've been in Mm -hmm. confrontation, Mm -hmm. but if you asked me, what was the conversation? I won't remember. Mm. Almost like there's a cloud over my head and like that moment is kind of... Well, rather than thinking of a cloud, think of the fact that your brain, which is really a inverted triangle, the whole brain looks like, and that the the apex, the narrow point at the bottom, that's the brainstem, 
that's regulating your body. If the brain stem says you're under life threat, those higher areas of the brain are basically turned off. So uh, the ones of moral judgment, intentionality and narrative, they all, they're all turned off. And so what you're left with is basically you, you become very reptilian and potentially even below that in terms of the evolutionary history. So for someone who's experienced that, how do you help them push through or start to rewire, but not rewire, but like assess, um, access, a new part? Access is the real word. You see too much of, I would say, the misapplication of neuroscience into the clinical world is about rewiring and neuroplasticity. And if people had a better understanding of how our nervous system works, especially the autonomic nervous system, they would acknowledge it, that it's, it shifts states. And when it shifts into different states, you have different emerging properties. And so when you are going into this life threat state, the emerging properties are really not social, they're not trusting, and you don't have access to areas of your brain where you might behave like a smart individual. So what a lot of people who have suffered from trauma say is, I'm not smart anymore. I can't think the way I used to think. And so the real, and this is a serious question you ask, how do you get them through it? And polyvagal theory uh, started, actually started to articulate it in 1994, And by the late 1990s, it was the world of trauma therapists that really welcomed me as a a laboratory scientist into their world. And it was because I provided the scientific narrative of the experiences of their clients. And up to that point in time, they had no narrative. And without the narrative, the survivors felt shame and blame. They basically said, why didn't I fight? Why didn't I run? And once they understood a little about polyvagal theory, the narrative enabled them to shift to a a storyline of being heroic. Their body did a miraculous thing. It saved them. It may not have made them social, but it made the right decision at that time, and it wasn't a conscious decision. So rather than feeling that their body betrayed them or the nervous system betrayed them, which is how many people feel, they now have a sense of pride in the heroic actions of their body. So the first thing in terms of getting out of this, in a sense, the feelings and the immobilization that persists after the adaptive one is to shift the narrative. That narrative is shifted by a more uh, nuanced understanding of how our nervous system evolved for an invertebrate nervous systems evolved to respond to the threat and and to distinguish between danger and life threat. So when we're dangerous, which can even be in our workplace where people are evaluating us, we get into a state our bodies feel like it's they're under attack. That's a totally different feeling than life threat where you feel there it's inevitable that you're going to be killed or die. The body makes a different decision. And those who have often experienced abuse and rape situations have had a physiological feeling that they were dying, that they were going to die. And that creates a retuning of autonomic state. Now, the responsibility as you're to the therapist, how do you act as the guide to get the person back to their resources? The first step is through the narrative of understanding that in itself has tremendous healing potential. The next part of it, and this is where a lot of therapies are going, 
And that is they're being, and this is my term, they're being polyvagal informed, which means they're not polyvagal theories, but polyvagal theory is informing the model. And when you are polyvagal informed, you start gaining tremendous respect for the power of the physiological state that you're in and how that biases, distorts, or facilitates your perspective of the world. Meaning, when you're in different physiological states, you have a bias towards thing, seeing things as being positive, while in other physiological states, your bias for survival is to be very skeptical and see things negative. And what many polyvagal informed therapists are doing is teaching their clients to move through different physiological states and to be aware of those shifts in their own perspective of the world. And that becomes part of their therapies. And often it requires different breathing and different patterns because breath is really a wonderful gift because when we manipulate our breathing, we can change the neural tone of our autonomic nervous system. And if we change that neural tone, even for short periods of time, we can experience the world differently for those moments. I'd love to talk about the breath more because we talk a lot about the breath and we talk about deep diaphragmatic breathing <laughs> where the exhale, the breath out is longer than the breath mm -hmm. in. Because sometimes when you cue someone to breathe, they like take yeah. a big breath in and puff the <laughs> chest and almost go into like an overstimulated state. Yeah, well, well, let's start with the basic rules from a polyvagal perspective. If you want to calm a person down, you want to have more of this newer mammalian vagal pathways. It's a myelinated vagal pathway. It's linked to exhalation, slow, long exhalation. But the areas of the brain that regulate that nerve are linked to the nerves that regulate the muscles of the face and head. So when you see a person smiling and when their intonation of their voice shows a good range, they're often breathing, exhaling slower, and their inhalations are shorter relative to the exhales. They're using diaphragmatic breathing because during the exhalation is the time that vagal pathway inhibits the sympathetic activity. So you can actually calm people down by having them take a short inhalation and a long exhalation. You can amplify the effect of that if they use their diaphragm as well because it enhances that feedback. But these are principles that have been known for centuries. You know. so, but the physiology is really clear that if you want to downregulate your defensive parts of your autonomic nervous system, exhale slowly. If you want to turn that part off and you want to become more mobilized or defensive, let's say you're an athlete, let's say you're a sprinter and you have to run. Well, then you would extend the duration of inhalations and reduce the duration of exhalations and that will turn off that wonderful vagal inhibition or vagal break and get your body prepared to run or, or flee. But when people get scared, they do that automatically. Or if you have your client, your patients coming into your office and they are a little bit scared, you can tell by their breath. You can tell in terms of when they speak, the intonation of their voice will not have a range of intonation, which would be called prosody. They will speak with higher pitch or narrower frequency bands. And you basically, they're projecting their physiological state, but you see it as that they're projecting their anxiety but it really they're projecting the fact that their vagal inhibition is turned off. 
to get nuanced with the breath, a lot of people talk about box breathing, which is an equal inhale and exhale. And I always, you know, when they talk about box breathing and meditation, Mm -hmm. and I'm always thinking, but why not just exhale a little bit longer? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you see, that's a good intuition. I will tell you a little story and you'll see how consistent it is with what you're saying. I was talking at a conference at UCLA in Los Angeles uh, about a decade ago. And the person who was going to introduce me the night before said to me, she was very frightened to do the introduction. There'd be a thousand people there. And could I help her? And, you know, at parties, you say things that maybe you shouldn't say. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll fix it. And the next morning, 10 minutes to nine, she walks right up to me face to face and says, okay, Steve, fix it. But what I noticed, so I, first of all, I was kind of like shocked. You know, you say things to your friends, you don't expect them really to believe you're going to fix it because this was a lifelong problem she had of public speaking anxieties. So I noticed that she was huffing and puffing in the sense she was taking a breath on every word. And from my perspective, it meant that her breathing patterns were supporting the state of anxiety. So I said to her, increase the duration of your phrases, add words before you take a breath. And it was very, very hard for her initially. And then she started to add a word and then another word. And her whole, the texture of her face changed, her posture shift, her state, her, her perspective of the world changed. She relaxed and she went up and did a beautiful introduction. And since she's a clinical psychologist, she now uses that to help treat people with speaking anxieties. But it's the really, how do you access the breath? Well, the easiest thing is extended duration of your phrases if you're in a social setting. And if you want to cue another person, it says take a breath on every word. And as a clinician, you can see people who talk that way and they take a breath and suddenly you're feeling just like them. Yeah. 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 I heard you say this, and we actually use this in the office. So if you think about people coming off the busy New York City street, and then they Mm -hmm. come to get treated, sometimes we'll have them hum. Yeah. Or before they come to us, I'll tell them, like, sing Mm -hmm. before you come into the building and come up the elevator. Or I know you play the clarinet, but people who can have that control of the exhale yeah, so um, as you're talking, I'm just wondering, maybe we should bring the old kazoos back. And, and we have, have kazoos in our office. Yeah, and yeah. let's play, have the old kazoo march. There was a marching kazoo band at one point. Yeah. But so I, and of course we smile when we think about that because we have memories and it's about exhaling slowly. Yeah. And I, you know, the story about playing the clarinet, which whenever I give, tell that story, there's always a percussionist or a string person or a keyboard person who will stand up and say that they disagree with me and say that they breathe the same way as the wind instruments because they breathe with the phrasing of the music, which is very physiological. And that's true, but my, my final comment is when you play a wind instrument, you have no choice. <laughs> you created the Safe and Sound Protocol, mm-hmm. which is to train that state of feeling safe. Yeah. So... We evolved to detect cues of intonation of vocalizations as signals of safety. Mothers, when we start talking about mothers and their babies, you watch how a mother calms a baby. She's using a prosodic or a melodic voice. 
If you watch men with their dogs, they'll talk to their dogs in their melodic voice. I refer to men with dogs because they tend to do a better job with dogs than with their own children. So the vocalization, they feel there's a privilege to talk in this melodic voice with the dog, but it's not their privilege with the child. They have a different responsibility. The point is that our nervous system evolved to detect cues of safety from vocalizations. When mammals first evolved, how did they know they were safe to come close together? So the, the species or the conspecifics, those are the same species, had to signal each other that they were safe to come close. And that was through vocalizations, not through language. As we evolved into humans and developed language, language was a distractor. We start to think that it's only what people say and it's not how they say things that's important. But our nervous system is detecting how people are saying things. And the way they say it, the intonation, determines whether or not our body is welcoming to proximity with them, in a sense, whether we trust them. And that's, that's the whole evolution of mammals. It's because the vocalizations that create those intonations are regulated by nerves in the brainstem that are actually linked to the vagal regulation of the heart. So in a way, when mammals evolved, they were projecting their physiological state in their voices. But you know that. See, you are a therapist. You know that, that when someone comes into your, your office, you know what state they're in by their voice. So the safe and sound protocol was really developed on the hypothesis that what happens if you pipe intonations, basically I would call it the distilled essence of trust and safety. So if you can computer alter vocal music to amplify those prosodic features, you'd be literally piping into the brainstem the distilled essence of trust and safety. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the safe and sound protocol was. It was developed as a retuning mechanism to, as an, because it modulated the degree of, of prosody over five one-hour sessions to recruit a system that had been literally poised to be defensive. So when you talk to clients who have had trauma histories, or if your clients are on autistic spectrum, which they may be highly successful individuals, but on spectrum, you'll find out that many of them have auditory hypersensitivities. Their body is poised to detect low-frequency predator-type sounds. Those same people may say they have difficulty understanding what people are saying in noisy environments. They, they can't process human speech, but they're hypersensitive to low-frequency sounds. This is an indicator that the structures in their middle ear, between the eardrum and the inner ear, where the little bones and little muscles are, saying that those structures are tuned for predator. So they're optimized for predator, but if you're optimized for predator, they're really compromised for social behavior. So what the safe and sound protocol does is it gets the neural regulation of those middle ear muscles working again. And if it catches that neural exercise, the auditory hypersensitivities will be dampened and the ability to process human voice will be increased. But there are a lot of other benefits that come from this treatment because the structures, what I call the integrated social engagement system, which are the nerves regulating the striated muscles of the face and head, are linked to the nerves regulating the vagus to the heart. So if you get the listening part going, the facial expressivity part goes with it, 
And so there's the autonomic part of being calmer. So if you get these integrated, what you start seeing is people become more spontaneously engaging with other people. They can go, they have greater resilience. They can go to louder restaurants or shopping malls without this inability to uh, feel comfortable, to feel safe. Is this something that is inherent? Is I mean, I think of myself as a little kid. I was always like, oh, everyone's so loud. <laughs> and now being in New York, it's even more so like it's really hard to concentrate in having a conversation with the, in a loud restaurant. Is this something that is... You're asking whether it's a permanent trait or it's a state. Yeah. In, in general, it's a state. Well, there are two things that are occurring. If for younger people, it certainly is a state. As some of us get older, the system starts to, let's say, get weaker, the, the neural tone or the ability to regulate. So lots of older people don't want to go to noisy environments, certain concerts, restaurants, and especially those, when you go to a restaurant, and this is what I do, I always make sure I sit with my back against the wall so that I can focus on the person's voice. Now, the reason I do that is I have certain hearing deficits that are not just middle ear issues, there are other issues. So I try to maximize what I can do, but by sitting against the wall, your nervous system gives up some of its vigilance. So if you're sitting out and people are around you, your physiology is preparing you to defend. And so this becomes something to think about if you have a child who's on a spectrum or an ADD child, you don't want to have them in situations where the cues are bombarding them or they're being bombarded with cues of activity which their body is interpreting as intrusion or dangerous. Can we talk about like resiliency? Mm -hmm. So I think about some of the words you said, like optimism, and I think about, for example, the Navy SEALs yeah. who, when there is danger all around them, they show up with courage. Some of them explain it. It sounds like they're in a flow state. Mm -hmm. From what I've noticed, very, very optimistic group, but yet they are, you know, subjected to tremendous dangerous situations. Yeah. The SEALs are a very interesting story. And I have a friend who works with them, and he, he actually told me some very interesting things. He says part of their training is where they almost die and they're resuscitated by their teammates. And so they go into, when you're almost drowning, you're shutting down, but now you're resuscitated and you develop this very strong bond of trust and love for the people that you work with. And what their model is, they don't leave anyone behind. But so his story goes like this, and he's a psychiatrist. And he said that when you talk to the SEALs, they say that if my team is going to be sent anywhere in the world, in an hour, I'll be there. And then, then the next question is, if my wife and family I, are going somewhere, I'll have to think about that. So, so they have yes. this close bond of trust. Now, we want this word trust, and this is very much linked to the concept of safety. And we can even use the word love. We don't have to use the word love, but their nervous systems trust each other. The power of that trust enables them to do miraculous things. And that's really what I'm saying. And it's a model that if we had a society or community 
in which people felt trusted of each other and connected, then there'd be tremendous resilience. And also the world would be a lot lot nicer. So in this day and age where there's less sense of trust, there's Mm -hmm. less eye contact now Mm -hmm. that everyone's looking at their phone, it's almost kind of like a, a whole cultural shift. Well, not being able to like take in information and feel so, like that so connection. Let's just hold that for a moment and let's reflect for an issue because what we'll get into is a uh, a mass movement. This is a horrible time, a horrible place, and people have never been treated that way. <laughs> and the answer is people have always been treated poorly in different ways, but people always have the opportunities, or I should say always one hope that they always have the opportunities to feel safe with someone for some period of time. So the issue is not that we need 24 hours, seven days a week of face-to-face co-regulation, but we need some time with others in which we are entrusting in a trusting relationship. And I don't know how, how much we need or how much anyone needs, but if we have this, it enables us to be both resilient and also bold. When we say bold, it means that we don't need that co-regulation to stretch out because we have mental images and we have a trust in our relationships to believe that those relationships are there for us if we need them. So it's not about quantity, necessarily. That's right. And in a sense, a high-quality, trusting relationship provides tremendous amount of power or energy for self-regulation and bold behaviors. But there is one thing that you're right about in terms of the modern world we're in. We're in a chronic state of evaluation. And I was talking to a person actually from Ireland. I was doing a webinar, and she was working in the prisons there. And that's another place where people, you know, two areas that are extremely important, foster care and prison populations, where individuals don't feel safe at all. And if you are foster in your foster care system, many of those individuals end up being incarcerated because of the history of chronic abuse or lack of feeling safety and trust. And I was discussing with her literally like a metaphor. I was saying like being a professor was very similar to being in prison. Now, one says, how can that be true? Well, it's the same issue that in the academic world, as it has evolved, it's far from being a a world where you are a monk and you can be a recluse or you can be anything you want and you're taken care of. Academic institutions are always evaluative, chronically evaluative, and there are no benchmarks that remove you from evaluation. And when you start understanding that and you start seeing how the evaluation has shifted over the decades, from when I entered science, it was really the evaluation was on impact and recognition. Are your ideas embedded or used by your community and move to how much money are you bringing in in terms of grant funding not how good is the work but how successful are you in bringing money so it became very in my world reptilian it was no longer this notion of growth and ideas so prisons have the same thing no one feels safe in them and the academic world has also this notion that if we, and it has a belief system that, that says if we make sure that people don't feel safe, they'll work harder. Yeah, okay. especially, yeah, but, especially but in this day and age. It misses what it is to work harder. 
It means they'll work harder doing what other people are already doing because they're not going to be adventurous or creative. They're going to be me too types of researchers. So to do something different, to be innovative, you basically put yourself on the line, which means you're saying, hit me. You know, you're putting a sign on your back and say, evaluate me even harder. Right. And that's why you find a lot of people kind of gravitate to niches of research and niches of work where they take the identity of the group as what they are doing and not themselves. And so the space to have creativity mm. needs to feel safe. Well, I, the question is, can you be creative and not feel safe? I mean, it, so you ha if you feel safe, it's really saying I can go outside the boundaries of what others do. I can stretch the boundaries because I feel safe enough about who I am. And if you don't feel safe, what happens to creativity and what happens to boldness and what happens to high-risk projects? They disappear. And that was really what distinguished American science from European science and, and Asian science. Asian science was, a lot of it had been modeled on American or Western science to do what they did. And, and European was almost, it was a hair professor. It was a lineage model. And the American model was followed democratic principles, at least initially. And it was, in many ways, the Wild West, because you could have a young gunslinger go out there and, and do something. And I talk about the, you know, this all, things changed a lot in the 50 years that I've been a scientist. And it's been really shocking, because when I tell my story of the welcoming world that I came into, it's very different than the world is now. And I have a son who's an academic, and his, he has a skill set that I don't have or would have ever had to, to navigate in this complex world. And what's that skill set? He networks in a oh. different way. He networks. He has a rare situation where he has very good collaborators. And so he, he, he has a wonderful opportunities to do things. I came into science when it was a cottage industry and collaborations were, you collaborated, but you had to make sure that your nameplate or your brand of what you did was what was being defined. And he has a different one. And the other part that's different is I also was very interested in translating scientific ideas into products and, and techniques. And that was also kind of unusual when I started doing that in the 1980s. It's extraordinarily welcomed. It's really welcomed now because the universities see it as potentially commercial and another flow of, of resource. Yeah, monetization of it. Right, yeah. right. Your son also has great stage presence. No, that's the other son. <laughs> oh, that's the other son. Oh, okay. <laughs> they both have good stage presence. Oh, good. But you're, I was talking about my older son, Eric, who's a neuroscientist at the University of uh -huh. Florida. You were talking about the younger son, Seth, who's a journalist, and actually he has a, uh, for the New York community, he just finished a documentary that was sent off to Sundance, oh. Class Action Park. It's about an amusement park in upstate New Jersey that I took them to. It's the world's most dangerous amusement park, and seven people died there. Oh, and when he found out that I took him there, not just once, but twice, he said, Dad, how could you do that? And then he interviewed people, and he realized that it was they saw it as a rite of passage. Even Cory Booker went there. 
oh. Jimmy Kimmel. Or as Jimmy Kimmel said, everyone in his family got injured there. Um, so <laughs> Seth started to feel a, a camaraderie with this transformative experience. And he did a documentary. First, it was a humorous one for Mashable. But the second one is really much more complex. It talks about this youthful vitality of doing something and so you got injured. But then it turns in the documentary because they interview a family in which someone died. And you now get this whole reflection of these people who talk about their youth with great vitality and experience and excitement are now reflecting that they would have not done that as adults now. They would not bring their kids. And when you brought him, there was... Oh, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was a good daddy. You know, I took yeah. really good care. I mean, yeah. and, I, and I really liked the park because it was a participation park. It had very active water slides and, you know, they were not injured. <laughs> um, but but his movie is all about how it wasn't very well monitored, and that is true. His older brother was like maybe eight years old or seven years old when we first went there, and he he dove off a it was a model of the Alcapuco cliffs to dive into the pool, and the guard says to him, "Can you swim?" And he said, "Yes," and he just jumped, and I he was not a, a strong swimmer, so I I had to go right after him. But I'd say we had wonderful time. But we were, you know, as a good parent, they were not there on their own. And I was monitoring them and watching them even when they were underwater. Yeah. I'd love to shift because there's some research recently about vagal nerve implants or electrical stimulation of the vagus nerve to Mm. help with inflammation, Mm. especially around like rheumatoid arthritis. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, well, actually, my older son, Eric, and two of his colleagues who had worked with me in my lab, so he has, there's three of them who are very vagal-oriented, they have a patent on a uh, non-invasive vagal nerve stimulator working that's going to be used or at the University of Florida, and they're doing work on sleep and the impacts of a vagal nerve stimulator on PTSD, so they're working that area. The answer to your question is, yeah, the vagal system, if you stimulate, has anti-inflammatory pathways, and so uh, it should be helpful. And you don't need the surgical one, so when I say non-invasive, his and several others work off the ear, the external ah, ear. Interesting. And the safe and sound protocol, when I got it patented, there's also a claim of using it or a variation of it as an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator. Since it's going through the acoustic pathway of sounds of safety, cues of trust, which should have the same impact as the electrical stimulation. We're, we're doing a project on that with individuals who have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is the hypermobility syndrome. They have, on the mental health side, they're highly anxious, but also they have a lot of gastric pains, a lot of gut issues. And the theory, at least polyvagal theory, says if we give signals of this newer vagal circuit, it should tell the enteric, the subdiaphragmatic digestive system, to do its job, not to act in defense. So when you have gastric pain, it's often related to the gut being in states of defense. So what, what the model is, send cues of safety and let the system do what it should do. And the model is also that many of the comorbidities of diagnostic diseases may merely be comorbidities and not really 
linked to the disorder itself. So the Ehlers-Danlos, which is this hypermobility uh, of joints, may trigger some, and it may almost be similar to what you're saying, like inflammatory other issues, but many of the symptoms might be able to be turned off by cues of safety. That's so interesting. So we see a lot of patients with Ehlers-Danlos and even ones who have uh, just hypermobility. And I had always explained it that potentially one of the reasons of feeling anxious was because the joints are hypermobile, there's this <clears throat> lack of proprioception and mm. a lack of feeling stable and grounded mm-hmm. and yeah. that it can create that feeling but of I will, anxiety. I will tell you something else. Before I actually started doing research on this, I would have said, makes sense to me. But what we did, I'm going to have a collaborator who's at the university Wisconsin School of Medicine, and she's a pediatric gastroenterologist, and she was doing uh, non-invasive vagal nerve stimulation. We've been doing all the measurements uh, or analysis on the heart rate data, and we start to find out that 50% or more of her patients, for this is cyclic vomiting and severe gastric pain in adolescents, more than half of them had a diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome which shocked me because I had thought it was rare until that point. And then I start to look at the data analysis. I start to use a variable that I called vagal efficiency, which really looked at the oscillations in heart rate and how they were related to actual changes in heart rate. And the vagally efficient one individually, because the oscillations give you an index of that vagal tone. So if the vagal tone resulted in dynamic a lot of dynamic changes in heart rate, it meant that the heart, the actual rate of the heart was dependent upon these vagal oscillations. So we had people shift postures from seated to standing. So we got heart rate changes and we were seeing if those changes were being determined by that vagal break regulation of that. And the Ehlers-Danlos people have a very inefficient vagal break. I mean, it's so the findings were so powerful that we could actually diagnose the disorder from the heart rate pattern. So if we had two groups, those with the Ehlers-Danlos and those without, just on the heart rate patterns of the word, on this variable vagal efficiency would tell us what worked. Interesting. So is that why one of the symptoms that goes along with Ehlers-Danlos is that vasovagal response, like kind of yeah. that drop in? Well. I don't know, but what you're really saying is a, a, oh, the answer is the comorbidity between that and POTS or postural orthostatic hypertension. So there is a comorbidity there, and that's what you're picking up. So it's atypical autonomic regulation that we're picking up with our measures and the manifestation of it into diagnostic or disease entities is really pervasive. So it's not, there's a variety of autonomics, but I was really kind of excited by this because I got brought into Ehlers-Danlos by a psychiatrist from Barcelona who was very interested in my work and in some of the scales I developed. And he was interested in anxiety in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And now, but he didn't do autonomics. And now I said, wow, now I got the substrate. You see, it all makes sense. You don't need to even use the word autonomics. I use the word anxiety. You say that there's an autonomic dysregulation, and when we have those physiological feelings, we label them as being anxious. So cool. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? 
I mean, we've talked about so much. <laughs> well, I always like to leave with feelings of optimism because really what we're talking about is that we evolved as humans with physiological states. And those physiological states can either help us facilitate engagement with other people where we can co-regulate, or they can be shifted and help us defend against the world or kind of like disappear from the world. But understanding the power and the importance of physiological state and to, in many ways, monitor that. And so when people, in a sense, feel anxious and their muscles are like this, they can be aware of that and say, maybe this is not the right time for me to interact with anyone. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll go into a room and take a few breaths. In a sense, emphasizing that we should be witnessers of our own bodily state. And sometimes people are so numb from their own experiences, they don't feel their own body, but they see the impact of their bodily reactions in other people. And what we really want is to enable people to be better witnesses of their own body and to become more self-compassionate, to respect those bodily feelings, and do self-care, where if they're not in good physiological states or optimal ones, that they appreciate the limitations of what that will have on their lives. I love it. Optimism. Thank you so much. Oh, you're it's welcome. been a really interesting conversation. <laughs> Oh, thanks. Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.